I'd invite you this morning, uh, if you have a Bible with you or a smartphone, something that you have the Scripture on, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians. Uh, we just have a couple of weeks left as we journey through this little letter of Paul's together. Today we find ourselves in Colossians, the second chapter, verses 16 through 23. Um, if you're present with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's Word as we read together Colossians 2, 16 through 23. So don't let anyone judge you about eating or drinking or about a festival, a new moon observance, or Sabbaths. These religious practices are only a shadow of what was coming. The body that cast the shadow is Christ. Don't let anyone who wants to practice harsh self-denial and worship angels rob you of the prize. They go into detail about what they have seen in visions and have become unjustifiably arrogant by their selfish way of thinking. They don't stay connected to the head. The the head nourishes and supports the whole body through the joints and ligaments, so the body grows with a growth that is from God. If you died with Christ to the way the world thinks and acts, why do you submit to rules and regulations as though you were living in the world? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these things cease to exist when they are used. Such rules are human commandments and teachings. They look like they are wise with this self-made religion and their self-denial by the harsh treatment of the body, but they are no help against indulging in selfish and moral behavior. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As I thought about uh, the text this morning and really the last couple of weeks as we think about Paul's concern about maturity, I I couldn't help but go back to a a film that I saw a number of years ago. It's over 20 years old now and I kind of risk, because it's that old, that there are a bunch of you who won't know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to risk it anyway. Um, I think there's a picture that will be with it, but I I thought a lot about the movie The Green Mile. If you're familiar with the film, it is a film based on a book written by the same title, a book written by Stephen King. In it, Tom Hanks plays Paul Edgecombe, the supervising officer on death row at the Cold Mountain Penitentiary in Louisiana, somewhere in the middle of the 1930s. As supervisor of this place called the Green Mile, Officer Edgecombe recognizes the seriousness of his job and has a very particular set of rules and regulations to follow so that justice is meted out and that justice happens not only efficiently but as much as possible mercifully and correctly. And if those rules are followed, if those regulations are followed for him, then justice, even at the Green Mile, will work the way it's supposed to work. And everything's kind of fine for him until the character in the middle there, this huge African-American man named John Coffey, like the drink, only spelled differently, um, is brought to death row, accused and convicted of abusing and murdering two young girls. But as the film progresses, Hank's character and the others working on the Green Mile discovered that This man that they kind of fear, because he's so big, 
is not only quite gentle, but he's also uniquely able to take on the pain and the sufferings of others. In fact, fascinatingly, he's able to literally breathe in the pains and sufferings of others and take them into himself and, and heal by absorbing what has inflicted the other. In the end, John Coffey not only heals Officer Edgecombe, but also brings healing to his dying wife. And John Coffey's presence and power also brings truthfulness to the Green Mile and, and actually truer forms of justice to all the characters who are both good and evil that are involved in the story. But unfortunately, despite his innocence that is revealed, John is also executed on the Green Mile. And beyond the tragedy of the injustice at the center of the film itself, which haunts me, what also haunts me is the process of awakening and the loss of innocence that the character played by Tom Hanks goes through. His character is convinced at the beginning of the film that if he will just follow the rules, the laws, the regulations that have been established even though he has to deal with the dark side of that justice, everything will still be fine. Justice will be done. Evil will be vanquished. But what happens when the very system you believe in and have built your life upon ends up destroying someone not only innocent, but as life-giving as John Coffey? And what happens to you when you have participated in that system of destruction. I'm not necessarily recommending the film to you this morning, but there are interesting religious, film, or religious themes in the, both the film and the book that are worth discussing, and apparently were intentional by Stephen King. Um, as he, using the Green Mile, wrestles with the meaning of Christ and the meaning of the crucifixion. It's not an accident that the initials of John Coffey are J.C., as King tries to wrestle with, what does this mean for the whole system that crucifies the innocent one? The reason I couldn't help but keep thinking about the themes in that film is because in this text, and, and I was struck again as Paul tries to deal with this issue of the Colossians and other Christians that he's dealt with being connected to the law in ways that he finds damaging. I, I couldn't help but think about the emotional reality that has gone on in Paul with relationship to the law that he was raised within. For sometimes I, I think, as we think about Paul, we think one day he was kind of studying the scriptures or he encounters Christ and all of a sudden he has this intellectual reality that says, oh, yes, light bulb above the head. The law has now been crucified with Christ, and that's at this very intellectual level. The more I read Paul, the more I realize this is not just an intellectual level for Paul. This is a gut-level concern. Paul has seen the Judaism that he was raised in become the primary source for the conviction and crucifixion of the most innocent one, of Jesus Christ himself. And not only has Paul seen that happen, but he recognizes his own life caught up in that, lived that destructiveness out in the life, certainly of someone like Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and 8, 
but was lived out in this anger, divisiveness, destruction of the early church in Paul's life prior to his encounter with Christ. And so as Paul writes these things, it's not just an intellectual thing, it's somebody who has seen the ugliness and the potential destructiveness of all that he was involved in. And he is deeply at the gut level concerned that these folks not get caught in that too. Now this is very important. Paul finds himself in a really serious tension. On the one hand, he, he does not want these Gentile believers to lose connection to the Judaism of the faith. Please hear me say this. This is very important. In 1 Timothy, Paul will say this to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, etc. I know that oftentimes Christians use that verse to argue for all 66 books of the Bible to be authoritative. And there's nothing really horrible about that. But certainly when Paul was writing 1 Timothy, my sense is he had no idea he was writing scripture. Now what Paul is actually saying to Timothy in this church that is now Jewish and Gentile together, and I think this is very important too, as I've said to you, Paul has no space for the imagination to say, this is really hard to get Jews and Gentiles together. We should start a Jewish church and a Gentile church. Like, no, they've got to figure this out together. But when Paul says all the scripture is inspired by God, I think he is saying to Gentiles, you can't throw the Old Testament out. Because if you disconnect Jesus from the Jewish roots out of which Jesus emerged, his life, his ministry makes no sense. And so you have to stay connected to that Judaism, but at the same time, he sees that as they are connected to those Jewish brothers and sisters, they also seem to get caught up in, well, now maybe you Gentiles should get circumcised, or maybe you, in this text, maybe you should follow these festivals, maybe you should be part of these Sabbaths, maybe you should part of, be part of these convocations. And so it's this question of, what does it mean for a Gentile to serve Christ that emerges from this Judaism, and without that, they are not connected to the vine. But at the same time, Paul sees it's that very thing that had captured his life that had been the source of destructiveness in the life of Jesus. And he does not want them to get into that. Did you, lose, did I follow, did you follow me there? So as we get at this this morning, and, and I, I think this is a really important conversation, I have a, a second slide that I want to show to you as we think about maturity today, about what it means to take on the life of Christ. I have a slide that, that I think I've shown to you before. Um, if I don't remember, probably you don't either. Um, but it's hard for me to believe we've been together seven years and I haven't talked about this at some point. I, I could be wrong about this. I don't think that I am. But as I, I think about Paul's, as Paul deals with these issues of circumcision, new moons, eating rituals, Sabbath keeping, as he thinks about that in the life of the Gentiles in particular, and he thinks about that not just here in Colossians, but he thinks about that in Corinthians, he thinks about that in Romans and elsewhere. As I've thought about those texts, it seems to me that there are kind of four groups of people that Paul is concerned about. And so I want to kind of 
put this on Paul. I think there's kind of four ways of thinking about this that Paul thinks about. And, and I want to talk about each of those. And they're kind of in reverse order from bottom to top. That first, I want to talk about in relationship to an issue that Paul addresses with the Gentiles, meat sacrificed to idols. Paul will say there is, first of all, the immature believer who still eats meat sacrificed to idols. And then secondly, there's still a believer that he thinks is immature, but that immature believer doesn't eat. And we'll think about that. And then we kind of jump the line to a kind of maturity for Paul, but there's the mature believer then who eats, but then he gets to the kind of top category, which is there is the mature believer who doesn't eat. Let's start down at the bottom. Paul is deeply concerned in all of his letters to the churches about immature believers who are still eating meat sacrificed to idols. But here's why he's concerned about them. Because they haven't even thought about whether they should care about meat sacrificed to idols or not. That they're so new to the faith, so young in the faith, that they haven't really begun to think through all of the implications of what it means to put on the new life of Christ. Which certainly will address questions and issues like, is it okay for me, having come out of my life of paganism, to continue to eat this meat that has been offered to the gods of the territory? And Paul is concerned that as believers, we think through those ethical issues. They do matter. One of the ways to misread these kinds of texts is to say, Paul doesn't care about your body at all. Paul cares about you having a, a kind of intellectual consenting faith that maybe has warmed your heart at some level, but do whatever you want to with your body. Paul always articulates a very embodied faith. You have been bought with a price, he says to the Corinthians, so glorify God with your body. What you do with your body matters. So it's not that this doesn't matter. It matters. So think about it. Pray about it. Discern whether you should do this or not. But understand what that means. If I can use an example out of the text this morning, let me use this one. The keeping of Sabbath. It's a very important Old Testament law. In fact, a really distinguishing factor of Judaism that they honor the Sabbath and they keep it holy. It's in the Ten Commandments, number four. That they keep that holy. Now, I would argue that the reason why keeping Sabbath is important is because if we aren't careful, if we give ourselves to other kinds of rhythms that will shape us, we will start to believe this. We will start to believe that our value is equal to the work that we do. We've talked about this before. When you meet somebody, you ask them your name. What's the second question you ask them? What do you do? And as soon as you ask them what you do, there is a kind of valuing process that goes on there. You think, oh, cha-ching, or hmm. And we begin to ask questions like this, what is so-and-so worth? And that's oftentimes associated with our work. Sabbath is this thing that says, let's gather together free from work and recognize that we are all children of God together, regardless of what we do Monday through Saturday for a living, right? Or in the Jews' case, Sunday through Friday for a living. It also is a kind of rhythm that recognizes if we are not careful, we will fall into a narrative that says because what we do for a living is what we are worth, then we should work 
Because if you're not working 24-7, somebody's working 24-7, and they're getting ahead of you right now. And if you fall into that rhythm, it's very easy to begin to say, I've got to work 24-7, and therefore, everything around me needs to work 24-7. And it becomes very easy then to exploit creation, to exploit the creatures, to not allow them to live into a rhythm of rest and recovery as well. And we no longer become dominators of creation, but dominators of creation. Are you with me? Like, that's important. And I would argue, as our friend Brent Peterson often says about worship, that part of keeping Sabbath is to get our lives centered in a kind of rhythm where God breathes in and draws us close to God's self, and then God breathes out and sends us back. So we're not just the church when we're gathered, but we're also the church when we're scattered. But it's important to be the church when we're scattered, to be on a regular basis the church gathered. And that rhythm begins to shape and to form our life. So if you are the immature believer who hasn't even thought about, should I have that kind of rhythm in my life? Paul wants to say, grow up. You need to think about that. Are you with me? I think that's important. The problem is the second category. The immature believer, then who doesn't eat. And this immature believer doesn't eat Because they've come out of that, everything that their life was about before was so wrapped up in that paganism that they had to get out of that. But the problem now is that they've begun to see meat, not eating meat sacrificed to idols as the measure now of their own spirituality. And more importantly, it has become the lens through which they not only judge themselves, but now they judge others. And so it has become no longer a kind of act of freedom drawing them into this new life in Christ. It has now become a new regulation that they live under and are enslaved to and through which they now see and understand the world. So it's easy to understand. Let's go back to Sabbath. How Sabbath keeping then especially as these Gentiles who've never experienced that kind of rhythm are now introduced to it, how it could become a new law for them. And so we begin to say, well, clearly I'm Christian. I'm here every week. And I'm one of the good ones that fight for the front rows. Right? This is, and I'm fighting for the front rows to make sure everybody knows I'm here every week. Right? It's not even the right motivation for the front rows. But it has become this lens through which we now understand our own spirituality, but we also begin to judge and interpret the spirituality of others. And what's so deadly about it is it doesn't take very long for that to no longer be a response to the love of God that draws us close to the heart of God. It actually is drawn out of the fear of God because we're relatively certain that God is now keeping track and it has become the new way that we no longer earn, we no longer receive Salvation through grace, but we now earn God's favor through regular participation in the keeping of Sabbath. Have I lost you there? No. Here's why this is so problematic. People in category two that Paul thinks are immature, here's the problem. They think they're mature. Because they left that behind. They don't eat meat sacrifice titles. They now have given themselves to Sabbath keeping, to new moons and convocations. They now see themselves as the mature, and this is where Paul's problem comes in. 
When the Pharisees encountered Jesus, who wasn't disobedient to the Sabbath, but realized in the scope of how God is forming us to be reflections of him, there may be things like Mary and Martha today, there may be things that usurp in moments taking care of the table. There may be moments that usurp strict Sabbath observance. But as Jesus does that, the Pharisees, who think they're mature, have no ability to discern the difference. Have I lost you? I was thinking this week about an experience I had when I was a teenager. I invited a friend to church. And my friend finally came to church with me, but wore a baseball cap to church. And a, a saint, I'll use air quotes there, um, a saint of the church came up behind us and knocked the, hat, the cap off my friend and said, you are in the presence of God, act like it. Right? First of all, my, my friend had no idea what it meant to be in the presence of God, first of all. And let me give the woman a break. I think reverence and holiness is important. In a few weeks, Deb and Sophie and I are going to go to, we're, we're going on a trip to Europe and we're going to go um, we're going to go to Barcelona and Rome, and I'm going to go to cathedrals. And I'm going to bask in the holy space of them, right? I love holy space. I'm a fan of reverence in holy space. I think we ought to think about how we prepare ourselves to be in the very presence of God. But if that becomes the lens through which we interpret all things, we will end up destroying the very people we're trying to redeem. All right, so that's them, the immature, oh, let me say one more thing. I, I knew I'd look at my notes and I'd remember. Um, one little tangent here. I also think Paul is concerned for this group of people that they run after kind of fad Christianities. So he makes mention there that some of you are kind of obsessed with like all this angelology and stuff. And it's not like Paul says, oh, that's horrible, run away. But he's wanting them to be centered in Christ. I was thinking about that for myself. And this took, I thought about this for two minutes early this morning. And here's what I came up with. I've been part of bus ministry, evangelism explosion, going door to door. Seeker sensitivity, organic church, church growth through homogeneous units. I've been to the Institute for Basic Life Principles. I've practiced disciplines for the inner life. I've joined the divine conspiracy. I've lived a purpose-driven life. I've prayed the prayer of Jabez. I've done circle prayers. I've learned the Lexio Divina. I've taken the spiritual gift into our inventory. I know what my strengths are. I even know my Enneagram number. And I've learned my love languages. And the problem with any of those is they don't include exile or the language of new creation. <laughs> that... Please, before you send me an angry email, I, all of those are fine. And it's wonderful that we have these things and movements and strategies. But for Paul, if those become our focus and not how those things take us to formation in Christ, we need to grow up. So the mature believer that eats. So the mature believer that eats says the gods are nothing. I can eat the meat that I used to eat when I was a pagan, but now I've come out of that. I can go back to eating that because I don't think of the gods like I used to. The gods are nothing. They're made by human hands. When the city offers all the meat in town to the gods, they're offering it to the air. It does not bother me at all to buy that meat, to serve that meat, to eat that meat. 
I am free, glorious freedom, wonderful freedom. But here's the reason why they're still immature. Now, I know that in other places, Paul says they're immature because they, the ultimate mature believer doesn't eat, but for sake of the little ones, which is legit. Paul's concerned that our brother or sister who's coming out of that and sees us munching a hamburger might say, ah, and fall back into their old life. But I think it's deeper than that. The reason they're mature, but not quite where Paul wants them to be still, is because that freedom has become disconnected from the body that they are a part of. And I mean that not their physical body, but the body of Christ. And that freedom, and here's the problem for us, we are just self-deceptive enough that that freedom often becomes opportunity for self. And it causes us, if we're not careful, to become freedom for its own sake, disconnected from the very practices that we want to participate in. So let me go back to Sabbath for a minute. Keeping Sabbath should not be the measure of whether you are spiritual or not, but here's the problem. I broke my glasses. Pray for me. Um, It's okay. It's wrong if that becomes the way in which we measure our faithfulness. But once we are free from that, I, I was thinking about... And I can say this without problem because I have so many friends who I feel like I talk with who are in this category. For whom that freedom now has become disconnection actually from that formation. I have a friend in particular who, who has just completely disconnected themselves from pattern, regular patterns of worship. And when I say to them, hey, do you belong anywhere? Like, are you participating anywhere? They'll always say to me, and they're, another, they're a pastor's kid like me who lived at the church, was there every time it opened. They'll say, Scott, you and I, we went to church more times before the age of 25 than most people in their whole lifetime. Right? Which is totally true. And sometimes, if we're honest, we were there because we were afraid God was keeping track. Some of you will have no appreciation for this, but when, do you remember when we went on vacations and we, had to, we, we went to church on vacation, but we had to go to Sunday school on vacation and get a note from the Sunday school teacher to take back to our home church to tell them that we were in Sunday school that week so we could keep the pen going? Like, I know that three of you embraced that right there. But the problem with the mature person who doesn't eat for Paul is that they have embraced that freedom and now have lost all connection to the very habits that actually formed them. And so it's become freedom for its own sake. It's become freedom that isn't concerned with connection in the body of Christ. It's become freedom that, if it's not careful, opens itself up to the very forms of bondage. If not for them, at least, back to my friend for a minute, I want to say to them, maybe you went to church all the, you know, more times than the average person in their lifetime before the age of 25, but your children didn't and your grandchildren didn't. And so what you've opened up is this freedom that now brings back the very bondage that Paul has to start over and get people out of in the first place. Did you follow that? 
And so Paul says, there's the mature believer who doesn't eat. But they don't eat because it somehow has hindered, it's become the measurement of their spirituality. They, they don't eat because they're connected to this body and they recognize practices matter and and if I end up in a context where I eat, that's not going to condemn me to anything. But all that I'm doing, both in response to God and in response to others, has its rootedness in love, not in fear. And ultimately, that is the maturity that Paul invites them to. Connection to Christ, and we'll see it again in the text next week, that puts to death the old life but comes to this new life in love of God that then extends in love to others. And that's maturity. And so this morning, I, I want to say to us, if you find yourself in category one, and, and it's hard to be, for me to believe there's a lot of folks in category one who showed up on a summer Sunday morning. But there may be some folks who are here who find themselves in category one or online or somebody who stumbles across this podcast down the road. I want to say to you, what you do matters. Christ is not calling you to just intellectual assent or to say, in my heart, I believe these things, but then do whatever you want to with your body. No way. You got to put off the old life and come to the new life. But if you want to, but if you are in category two, no offense, there may be a few here today. I may be one of them. As hard as I try to resist, it's such an easy trap for us to begin to fall into that we find ourselves beginning to take these things that are important but make them primary. And they become the way we understand our own lives, largely in fear of what God might do to us if we don't do them. And they become the form of judgment then for others. And they become the form of division for the church. And not just division, but sometimes even deathliness. And so I want to say to some of the threes who are here today, and my guess is there are a few of us. I'm glad that you've become a three and you've left those twos behind. But I also know for many of us who became threes, we became threes out of response to the twos. And so now what defines our lives is our own form of judgmentalism and anger at the twos. And now what defines our life is a kind of freedom for its own sake. But that freedom is still self-centeredness. And if we're not careful, it will lead us right back into the forms of bondage that got us into this thing in the first place. And that's why Paul's word to us over and over is, grow up. But it's not a grow up. It is a, hey, lean into Christ. Let him help you to mature and to grow up. And to do these things not out of fear, but out of love not just for God, but for your neighbor, and begin to have that kind of maturity that is able to experience the fruitfulness of what it means to be a Sabbath person without being bound to the law of Sabbath keeping. Did you get that? That was really good preaching. <laughs> and really important. And that's the kind of maturity that, that God calls us into. And so... Let me just say it close with a couple of risky statements. 
For those of you who've been wounded by the twos, I am so sorry. I really am. Sometimes it's the fault of just bad discipling. And I, I know that, that those hurts can be devastating. Please, allow God to begin to help you forgive. And rather than reject and throw the baby out with the bathwater, discover all that God wants you to be that is free of that two-ness but lives into the kind of life those folks who got stuck there were trying to get to. Have mercy, have the kind of mercy you want God to have with you. But as you make that transition, this is the risky thing I want to say. I really do love when we are here almost every week. I need this. Uh, pastors don't have many Sabbaths, so I'll be gone from time to time because I need a break too. But don't allow that freedom to disconnect you from the rhythms of what it means to be shaped and to the practices that will form you. Because if you don't give yourself to these practices, you'll give yourself to some others. So lean into that. But don't come every week or almost every week because you're afraid God's keeping track. Come because you love God and love God's people and you can't wait to be with both of them. And this is really risky because we're in the middle of the summer and we're really behind. I would love for you to be a tither. But please don't tithe because you think God's keeping track. Or because if you give this, God will give that back. Because if you think in that way, then you will begin to judge others by that as well, including yourself. But learn what it means that everything... Tithing is such a great practice that allows us to remember everything we have comes from God. And there's a generosity that's built into the body of Christ that is beautiful when all people come, not with equal gifts, but with equal sacrifice. And if you can come and be mature with that kind of spirit, do it, lean into it. Are you with me? I could keep going. But Paul just urges us not to get stuck. <laughs> but to live fully into the maturity of Christ. God, help us today. Oh, this is challenging stuff. Um, I, I will confess, I'm concerned about twos. But today I'm actually more concerned about threes maybe because I'm a part of a generation that has, so re has reacted so strongly that our reaction has just been disconnection, which isn't really full maturity. It's freedom, which is so much better than bondage, but it's, it's really freedom still for self. And so, God, I, I pray that you would help us to be mature, grown up, people who are obedient to you out of love and not out of fear, people who lean into various practices that shape us to be the kind of people you want us to be, but not out of some form of legalism, but out of a heart of gratitude and a desire to be all that you've created us to be. 
Make us that kind of church, I pray God. Make us that with each other. Help us to be a people who are concerned with those folks in that first category who are just learning what it means to live into this. And may what they see in us not be a fearful legalism, but may it be a life-giving, spirit-filled, new creation reality of a community that they encounter that they cannot wait to grow up to look just like. And so help us to be that, we pray. But we don't do that because we grit our teeth and work harder. We do that because we lean into your grace and mercy and your presence and your strength. And so do that work in us, we pray. Sanctify us through and through. Help us to grow into the fullness of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Lord. For it's in his name that we pray. And God's people said, amen. Hey, Ryan, I want to mess this up a little bit. I love that chorus that we sang earlier. We love you, Lord. Can we go back to do that? Such a wonderful expression that what motivates us today is not fear, but the fact that we are crying out, we love you, Lord. We want to be a reflection of that. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? Let's sing it.
I know that uh, Dave Fraley invited you uh, to tonight and to two weeks from tonight to missions. I, I do want to add an invitation in the week in between. Next Sunday night, um, we're going to have a praise and sharing time out at Middleton and would love uh, for some of you uh, to be able to come and be part of that at 6 o'clock and kind of meet our friends at Middleton. And if you haven't had a chance to see that campus to get to be there, it'll be a fun night. So I encourage you to come be part of that. If you've listened well uh, this morning, it's good to be here, isn't it? But not because we got a check mark on God's cosmic role today. And they take points off if you don't have good attendance. It's good to be here because a God who loves us, wants to redeem us and change us. It's just so good to be close to God and to God's people and now to be sent as God's people in the world. And so as we grow into him, receive this benediction. May the God of peace, may he mature us, sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls and bodies be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us to grow up in him, he is patient and faithful and good and loving and he will not stop until he finishes this work in us. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.